I think the thing that saddens me so much about our disagreement is that we are we're really on the same side. Uh, we are both concerned about this terrible sin of abortion in our in our country that blights our community as well as as the nation. We're co-belligerents in believing this is an, an evil that needs to be redressed. And uh, unfortunately, the debate has uh, has disintegrated. Uh, uh, well, that's probably too strong a term. It has deteriorated uh, over this whole matter of methodology. And uh, the discussion continues. I'm still uh, meeting with representatives from Operation Rescue, and we love these people. They're they're part of us. Many of you here, not I don't know how many, but quite a few of you are involved in the movement. And we're trying to uh, trying to spend a great deal of time talking and talking this thing out. Uh, that uh, that is what we want to uh, want to accomplish. Would you turn with me, please, to the fourth chapter of John? Uh, this is one of those mornings when there seems to be absolutely no connection between my brain and my mouth. I uh, spent the the entire first service trying to explain what I was thinking and uh, discovering that, that uh, what I was saying was not at all what I was thinking. I don't object to people going to sleep or even disagreeing with me, but when they, when they go, huh, uh, that's a little disconcerting. I, I, you know, I've, I've never been particularly concerned about the form of sermons, uh, as <laughs> those of you that know me can attest. I just get up here and talk. And, but it, it, it does bother me when people don't understand and so if you don't understand, raise your hand and I will repeat myself. All right? We will try to make this uh, as clear as we can. Fourth chapter of John. I was over uh, uh, at my grandchildren's uh, home recently and they were watching television. And I observed that the cartoons are cranking out the same message that, uh, that, that they were delivering when my children were growing up. Essentially the message is that everything's going to be all right. The uh, good guys... Uh, Get away, the bad guys get their comeuppance. Uh, what amazes me is that children do not sit there and sneer. Uh, those of us that are older and supposedly more sophisticated uh, become very cynical about life. We know that uh, that's not the way life is. Very often the, uh, the bad guys get away and the, the good guys die. And uh, it, it, it just doesn't seem right to us that the world is ordered in that way. We, we would like to see things turn out differently. We, we like the fairy tales. We like to watch the, what's going on on TV because that's what we would like for life to be. But over the years, we have become very cynical. We know that the television programs that children see are too good to be true. And uh, we want something that will give us hope. I, for me, that's what the miracles do. Remember how I just explained the miracles last year, uh, last, see what I mean, last week? Uh, the, the, these, are, these are more than manifestations of the power of God. They give us glimpses of God's care and his concern, and they let us know what life is going to be like someday. God intervened. He, he entered into human life. And he did things. He worked miracles. And we saw what life should be be like. And it's a, sort of a down payment, an earnest uh, of the time when everything is going to be like that, when every evil will be addressed. Uh, every sin will be, will be put away. Death 
no longer will, will rain. The tears will no longer roll. Everything will be, will be set right. And uh, the miracles tell us what that will, that will be like. I pointed out that the incarnation is God's way of speaking his word to us. The, the good news is that God loves us. And you see that in the thoughts and in the, the words and in the actions of Jesus. Jesus said, what the Father says, I say. He didn't make up his message. He simply repeated what he heard the Father saying. The attitude of the Father toward the despised and the lowly and the oppressed and men and women and children and all racial groups uh, is, is manifest in the way Jesus treated those people. And the works of the Father are shown in the way our Lord worked. Jesus said, my Father is working and I work. And so what we see in the miracles is a speeded up version of what God is doing every day. God's making, he's turning water into wine every, every day of our life. And he's multiplying bread. And he's healing children. And uh, he's raising the dead. But it just takes a little longer. What we see in the miracles is a speeded up version of what God is doing. And also glimpses of what life will be like when our Lord uh, comes back and sets everything right. And that's what gives us hope for the future and trust in God's goodness. Now, I would like to have us look at the second of John's signs. It's the story of the healing of the nobleman's son. There are two signs in the first four chapters of John that are given in detail. We know there are more that Jesus worked. In fact, John said if he had reported them all, it would take a book much too large. Uh, to contain them. And so he gives us uh, only two in these opening chapters, but he's developing a theme. He has an idea he wants to, uh, uh, he wants to, uh, uh, to teach us. And so he's selective in his choice uh, of the miracles. The first one is in John 2. It's the story of the changing of water into wine in Cana. And in chapter 4, there's a miracle that takes place in Cana. Now, <laughs> now, we mustn't think that our Lord spent that entire time in Cana. He was traveling around, ministering to people in the countryside. As best we're able to trace his journey, he left Cana after the wedding feast. He went down to Capernaum. Capernaum then became his hometown. He settled there. Uh, most of his disciples were from that portion of Galilee, the, the northern part of the Sea of, of Galilee. And so he settled there in uh, in Capernaum, and that became his base of operations from which he went out into the countryside and began to uh, began to preach. Uh, he, he went from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. He uh, he cleansed the temple in Jerusalem during the feast of the Passover. They asked for a sign of his authority. They asked him, "What by what right do you do these things?" And uh, he pointed out that he, the only sign he would give them was the sign of the resurrection. They misunderstood it they, he, when he said, "Tear this building down, and in three days I'll rebuild it." They thought he was talking about the temple proper, but he was talking about his body. That was a common misconception among the, the Jews of Jesus' time, one that really wasn't straightened out until the, the resurrection took place. But he makes a very significant statement there. The one sign, the one sign that ought to arrest our attention and ought to convince us that God is good is uh, the resurrection itself. We'll, we'll talk more about that later. That's the great uh, authentic, uh, authenticating sign. Uh, there's something interesting said in, in John 2. If you turn with me to verse 23, John 
when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding the signs which he was doing. So he was uh, doing other miracles, which are not recorded for us. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He knew that their faith was short-lived. It was uh, superficial. It was based upon the miracles. They saw him uh, change water into wine. They saw him heal the sick. They saw him give sight to the to the blind, and they believed him. And there was a measure of faith there, but he knew that it was a very shallow faith, and so he did not entrust himself to them. But there are some sterling exceptions. And I believe John at this point begins to gather some of the exceptions. Nicodemus is one who heard about Jesus because of the signs, went to see him at night, and became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah on the basis of his words. Jesus worked no miracles for uh, Nicodemus. Immediately after the Passover, Jesus journeyed through Samaria on his way uh, to Galilee, back to, uh, to Cana. And on the way through Samaria, he met the woman at the well. That story is given in chapter 4 of John. You, you know it well. Uh, he told her everything she ever did. And uh, her comment was, no one, <laughs> no one ever said anything like this to me before. You must be the one who is to come. Uh, he met her, her deep and desperate needs. She went back. Uh, to town and told the menfolk about this one who told her everything she ever did. Interesting thing is said of them. Uh, Verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Not his miracles, but his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, as far as we know, no miracles were done in Samaria. And uh, John seems to be indicating that there is a there are different levels of faith, and the higher level of faith was achieved by Samaritans who weren't even Jews. They were members of a cult, a non-Jewish cult, and uh, yet they believed, uh, and they had a, a, a much deeper, much more authentic much more real, lasting faith because they believe simply on the basis of the word, not because they saw. Uh, for them, believing was seeing instead of our way of putting it, seeing is, is believing. Now, I think the third uh, exception to the, the general rule is the official whose son uh, was, uh, was terminally ill. The story is told here in, in John 4. Let me uh, read, uh, read John's uh, description of what happened. He, that is Jesus, came therefore again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Capernaum was about 20 miles away from Cana on the north shore of, of the Sea of Galilee. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, Judea is uh, the region in the south uh, where Jerusalem uh, was located. When he came out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him, and, and uh, John suggests that this was a repeated thing. He kept asking him to come down and heal his son, for he, that his son, was at the point of death. Jesus therefore said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. This uh, at first reading sounds very harsh. He does address these words to the, uh, to the official, but the pronoun... Um, which uh, is translated in the New American Standard, you people, is plural. 
which would suggest that he's referring not to the man, but to all that were standing around or to some other group. We'll talk about that in, in a moment. And uh, the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way. I literally get going. I go back to Capernaum. Get started because your son is alive. The man believed the word. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he started off. And as he was ne- as he was now going down, his servants met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said, therefore, to him yesterday at the seventh hour, which would be one o'clock our time, uh, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed. He put his trust in him on the basis of what he had said and his whole household. This is, again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he'd come out of Judea into Galilee. We don't know much about this man other than what's written here. We have no idea who he is. There's a long-standing tradition in the, in the church, we're told, that this man was uh, had the name of Chusa, C-H-U-Z-A. His wife was Joanna. Uh, in Luke 8, those two people are mentioned, Chusa and uh, Joanna, his wife. Joanna was, uh, was able to support our Lord out of her, her wealth. This was a very wealthy couple. And as I say, traditionally... This official was Chusa, and Joanna was was uh, his wife. But we don't know. We'll call him Chusa for lack of uh, lack of a better name. He was, he's described here as a royal official. We don't know exactly what that means. He may have been a member of the royal family. He may have even been related to Herod, uh, or he may have been a member of Herod's cabinet. In any case, he was a, a very uh, uh, quite well known, very influential, prestigious uh, person. Probably not even a Jew or maybe only uh, uh, partially related to, uh, to the Jews. Herod himself was an Idumean, uh, was not Jewish per se, and uh, if this man was a member of that family, then he would, he would uh, not be Jewish either. We, just, we simply don't know. All we know is that he was uh, he's described as a part of royalty. Uh, from the standpoint of most Jews in that day, he was on the wrong side of the tracks, Politically, uh, they would use the uh, L word on him. Uh, he uh, would would be a, a part of the political structure in Palestine that oppressed the Jews. He'd be related to Herod's uh, house. The Jews did not like Herod. They considered him uh, uh, illegally a king. They, they, while they were subject to him, they really did not care for him at all. And this man was part of that uh, particular faction, that particular group. That's interesting that Jesus would care about him. He certainly was, was unlike the disciples. Some of the disciples are described as zealots. That is, they were intensely nationalistic. Uh, this man would be a quisling. He would have sold out, basically. Uh, it didn't matter to our Lord. Political beliefs are important. We should all have them, but they should never separate us from anyone else. And certainly they should never affect us in terms of our relationships within the kingdom of God and our attitude toward those that are in need of our Savior. We should love people who have political beliefs other than ours. We should honor them, as, as Paul says, honor all, uh, all people because they're created in the image of God. We should never demean or, def- 
degrade them in any way, and we ought to see them as in need of of our Lord's saving grace if they're not members of the of the family. This is the attitude that our Lord took toward this uh, this man. I always think of uh, Woody Guthrie's comment in terms of the kingdom of God: uh, right wing, left wing, chicken wing uh, doesn't make any difference. These are uh, people who have needs, and we need to be aware of those needs, and we need to be moving in their direction. Our Lord did, but he did so in an odd way. Uh, This man had uh, an enormous need. Uh, He was a parent in pain, and if you've ever been a parent in pain, you know exactly how he's feeling. Some years ago, we were told that one of our boys uh, had a tumor on his arm. For a while, we uh, believed it might be malignant. We went for about a week believing that. I can tell you that is one of the most terrifying things you can ever go through. You do not sleep. Uh, you cannot think clearly. Uh, it, it, is, it is a very, very difficult time. So I, for one, can always relate to parents that, uh, who are told that their children are dying or their chil- children are critically ill. That's a tough time. That was the condition this man was in. This, this child was declining rapidly. Uh, he was at the point of death. They had tried everything. I'm sure they had called upon physicians. The child was desperate. And uh, there was simply nothing this man could do. And he came to Jesus and appealed to him for help. I don't think he knew what Jesus might do. He had seen Jesus work miracles, but he had also seen that there were a lot of people on whom Jesus did not work miracles. And he he was a realist. He, He understood exactly that some would be healed and some would want. He just knew that Jesus could do it if he chose to. Uh... C.S. Lewis long ago pointed out that uh, there's something significant about coming to Jesus and asking him for help. Something always happens. He said, in times of deep and desperate need, we might cry out, William Shakespeare, help me, and nothing much happens. Or we may cry out, Billy Budd, help me, and nothing much happens. But he says, for 1,900 years, whenever men and women are in desperate need and have cried out, Lord Jesus, help me, something happens. And that was the position this man was in. He desperately needed help. And he came to the right source and he asked for help. Jesus' uh, words to him are are very interesting, uh, very interesting, almost a rebuff. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to the man, but he's really talking about the people that were gathered on this particular occasion. He's talking about, about the Jews, by and large, because Jews traditionally look for signs to authenticate uh, someone's proclamation. They were the ones that asked Jesus when he was in the temple, what sign do you do that will authenticate your, uh, uh, your message and your actions? Paul uh, alludes to the same fact in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, and he says, Jews seek signs. The Jews are from Missouri. They had to... They had to see it. Seeing was believing. You show me a miracle and I'll, I'll believe you. That was, that was their reaction. They had chosen that as a way of determining truth. That was their theory of knowledge. Give me a sign and I'll, I'll believe it. Now the problem, of course, with that theory of knowledge is that it really isn't true. Signs don't convince anyone. Uh, even the resurrection didn't convince those who were predisposed to disbelieve it. Signs may encourage those that are already moving along in their faith, but, uh, but signs in and of themselves really do not uh, convince anyone. You can read through the Old Testament and see that, 
The miracles that Elijah and Elisha performed didn't necessarily compel belief. The miracles that Jesus did didn't compel belief, at least not a very deep level of belief. And uh, therefore, it is really not true that seeing is, is believing. There has to be another level of understanding, and it's this that our Lord, it's to this that our Lord wants to lead this man. That's why I ask him that question. Uh, these folks look for signs. Are you one of them? Are you among them? Are you one who's looking for, you want me to do a trick so you can, so you can believe in me? No, no, not at all. And if you've ever been a parent in this position, you would know that he did not come looking for, for stunts. He came looking for help. He was desperate. And in effect, he said, I don't know about any of that. You know, all I know is that my son is desperately ill. Will you please come down and do something? But our didn't come down. He didn't go down to Capernaum. He just spoke a word. And basically what he said was, get going. Get going. What are you doing standing around here? Go home. Your son lives. And then the account is so brief. It's so, uh, so laconic. You miss the drama of the whole thing. Would you do that? If you had been standing before Jesus and you were desperately concerned about your child, your child is dying at home, and you say, help me. And the Lord says, go home, your son lives. This man spun on his heel and, and he went home. He walked the 20 miles back home. Now some commentators uh, uh, draw the conclusion that he was so full of faith that he didn't even hurry home because it was the next day that he got there and anybody could walk 20 miles in just, uh, just a few days. But uh, And that may be true. Maybe he, he just uh, took his time because he... Uh, he believed that Jesus had had worked this miracle, and there was no need for it, for it for the confirmation. Another possibility is that John is thinking, according to Jewish reckoning, they believed that the next day began with daylight, or pardon me, with with uh, sunset, and so it could be eight or nine o'clock at night and still be the next day. So the statement of the servants yesterday would simply refer to the same day according to our time reckoning. The point is that when he saw the servants, the servants said, your son is well. And he said, well, at what time did he start to get well? And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. He's not getting better. He is cured. He's whole. When did that happen? One o'clock. Yesterday, from our standpoint. Um, You mean he just got up? Yeah, yeah. The fever left him. He just got. He's fine. He's in good shape. There's no no problem. And the man, uh, we don't know. I'm reading a lot between the lines, but I gather that at this point he said, "Well, that's exactly what I thought." And he went home, and he believed. We're told this is the next level of of, of belief. He is moving, as Paul would put it, from faith to faith, from one level of belief to another level of. Of belief, and his whole household believed with him. The sign simply confirmed what he already knew about Jesus that he was well able to heal, and his word was powerful. He had sent forth his word, and he'd healed his son. The point John wants to make is that he believed solely on the basis of the word. He didn't see a thing. Jesus could have walked down to Capernaum with him. He could have uh, spoken to the boy and raised him from the dead, and that uh, that would have been a confirming miracle. But our Lord, in a sense, put this man to the test. He gave him an opportunity to trust him without sight. 
He trusted him simply on the basis of his word, and his faith grew by leaps and bounds. And that's how our Lord increases our faith. Now, there are a couple of principles that I draw from this passage. One is that faith that requires sight is an emerging faith. Now, our Lord never demeans little faith. The disciples were characterized by little faith from from time to time, and and I would venture a guess that most of us are characterized by little faith from time to time. But our, and our Lord never demeans that faith. That is faith. It's faith. But it's just a modicum of faith. It's just the first steps in faith. And what our Lord wants to do is take us on to the next step. Now, what he will often do is give us what we ask for as a sign that authenticates our faith. That's all right. You know, the, He will give miracles. He will give signs in order to urge people to, to, to move on to another level of faith because he understands our weakness and our limitations. Uh, let me give you a couple of illustrations. There's the story of Gideon in the Old Testament. The Midianites uh, uh, annually invaded uh, the uh, upper regions of Galilee where, where Gideon lived. They would pillage and rape and burn and ruin and they would destroy crops as they traveled across uh, across the territory of Manasseh, and, and and Gideon is down in his hole of ground. He was down in a in an olive press, thrashing out a little bit of grain so he could feed his family. His head down, ducking so that no Midianite could see him. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, "Ho, oh, you mighty man of valor!" He says, uh, "You're you're going to deliver your people." And and Gideon uh, responds as I would respond, and most of us, you know, who me? And, and the, the angel of the Lord begins to take him on from that point to, to help his faith grow. Well, then a, a, little, a little farther down in the story, he's told that he's to gather all of his tribe and all the Abiasrites, all of, all of those in the northern part of his territory, and he's to lead them into battle against the Midianites and against the Amalekites, and they were 135,000 strong. And, and as he put it, we're the smallest tribe, and I come from the smallest clan in my tribe, and I'm the smallest man in the tribe. And you want me to give leadership to this uh, this ragtag army against you know against against the uh, the Midianites and the Amalekites? He said, "I tell you what, I, I, you, you've got to prove it to me. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do something that's contrary to nature. It would be like asking." Like us asking God for snow in, in the middle of July down here. And he, he said, all right, I'm going to put a fleece out on the ground, and tomorrow morning if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, then I'll believe you. So the next morning he got up, and sure enough, the, there wasn't any dew on the ground, on the grass around the fleece. The fleece was wringing wet. He could wring water out of it. And uh, he said, well, er, uh, would you mind proving it again? And uh, he said, let's try just the opposite. This time, uh, let's have the fleece dry and the ground wet. And it happened. See, it happened. Why? Because God understands how much we struggle in our faith. He knows what it means to have little faith. And, and he, he keeps giving us these indications that he's good and that he'll do what he's promised 
and that encourages us. A New Testament example is Thomas, prime example of someone who struggled in his faith. Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room. Uh, Thomas wasn't there for some reason. The disciples told him that Jesus had appeared. Thomas said, uh, I don't believe it. I won't believe it till I touch the marks in his hands and his side. And uh, the next day Jesus showed up again. Why? For Thomas' sake, he appeared for one, for one man because he wanted to move him on to the next level of, of belief. And Thomas' response, as you know, is to fall on his knees and to acclaim him as Lord and as God. And Jesus' words to him are very interesting. He said, you believe because you saw. He didn't rebuke him. Understand that. He didn't rebuke him. He said, you believe because you saw. But blessed are those who don't see and believe. We're going to move you on, Thomas, to the next next level of, of faith. And that's what our Lord wants of us. That's what he wanted for this man. That's what he wants for you and me. He wants us to believe him without seeing anything. Even if life is very dark for you right now, even if you've lost a child, even if your marriage is breaking up or your business is collapsing or your health is failing or God seems quiet and hidden and and unknown to you, the skies are brass and there are days like that for all of us. He wants you to to trust him. He wants you to walk by, by faith and not by sight. He wants you to know that that he's good, even though you don't see that goodness, you see? That, that, that's the level of faith to which he wants to, wants to take us and will take us if we, uh, if we permit him to do so. Uh, the, 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 the question I'm sure that you're asking at this point is, well, okay, what, what is the sign? What, what's the sign now that helps me in my faith? I look back over the last few weeks and I... I don't hear God speaking. I don't. Uh, I haven't seen God. I'm not aware of any miracles He's He's working on my behalf. Well, you can go back. You can go back to this story. This really happened. This is one time when God entered into history and He healed a boy. Uh, he doesn't promise to do that in every case. He doesn't promise to heal every son. He didn't heal every son then. Uh, he did promise this man that your boy would be healed. He said, your son is living, which implies more than just the fact that he's going to live a little bit longer. I mean, this, this boy was made well. His illness was cured. In this case, God promised. He doesn't promise in all cases, but here's one time he did, and he was true to his word, so there's one sign that you can go back to and recall that it actually happened. But let me tell you a greater sign. A greater sign is the cross. That's what we go back to. The cross and the resurrection. Uh, Harden commented on uh, the hymn that, that we sang. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Let me read something that John White wrote in The Cost of Commitment. He was talking about a time when God appeared to Abraham and the way they used to do covenants in the ancient world and as a sign to, to Abraham that it was actually going to happen. And then John White raises that question that I raised a moment ago. 
what about uh, today? What, what's the sign? You know, has God appeared to you lately? And has he given you a contract like he gave Abraham? Well, yes, he has. Stand at Golgotha, he says, as the horror of darkness falls. Look at the God-man who hangs in extremis from the gibbet. Dare you demand further evidence of God's goodwill in his negotiations with you? God has spoken the irrevocable word for your comfort and your assurance. Go to the scriptures. Read in the gospels all that took place. Christ's body was of human flesh and it was lifted up on a cross. The darkness actually descended. The veil in the temple was torn in two. These things happened and were recorded that you may know that God has has completely given himself to anyone who trusts him. He has gone to great pains to assure you that your gamble of faith is no gamble. That your commitment, your sacrifice, your step of faith will represent an entry into a deeper relationship with himself. See, the cross is the great sign. Jesus said, you tear down this temple. That's the cross. But the other great sign is the resurrection. Tear it down, he said, and I'll raise it up. So we go back. We go back to the resurrection as the one great authentic sign that God is good and that he is going to come through for us in the end. Now we go back to the miracle and we say, well, here's a, here's a boy that God promised would live and Jesus raised him from the dead. And then later we look at Jesus and we know that Jesus himself was raised from the dead to authenticate the truth of his message. And his message is, I'm going to do the same for you. I'm going to do the same for you. Oh, yeah, life is tough right now. It's hard. We're not seeing God intervene in every case to heal and to set everything right and to redress every evil and correct every injustice and make make the world what we dream that it, that it ought to be. Not now, but then. The time is coming when our Lord Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set everything right. Uh, in uh, one of Tolkien's books, he talks about fairy tales in the, what he calls the mythic element in fairy tales. That, that really what they do is represent for us the hungers and longings of, of our heart. And he puts it this way, fairy tales do not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. Uh, It denies universal final defeat, giving a glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world. So what what we see from these miracles, what we see from the great miracle of the resurrection is that the world will not end in final defeat, but in joy beyond the walls of this, of this world. One of these days, as, as Scripture tells us, and the Bible is full of it from beginning to end, from the prophets and from the apostles, one of these days God's going to roll up his sleeves and he's going to come back and he's going to set everything right. One of the prophets uses a very graphic metaphor. He says he's going to pick up the world like a rug and he's going to shake it. And all the pestiferous little things in the rug, all the bugs and all the virus, the, everything in the, in the rug that causes, causes conflict and, and, and uh, pain is going to be shaken out. There will be no fear, no pain. Infants won't die. 
Tears won't roll. Peace like a river will attend us. We'll melt down our arms and make farm implements out of them. No one, no one can complain then that God is hidden and silent and unknown because the prophets tell us that his glory will, will outshine the sun. Now, that's what I think the miracles tell us. They, they tell us that God is now presently working in this world to set things right here and there. But, but what these actions in, entail is, is a sort of down payment or, or, or earnest payment toward the time when he's going to come back and set everything right, when we're going to see him and everything will be ordered and, and put in its proper place and, 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 and life will be just like we've dreamed. That, that, it was, that it should be. And once we get that into our heads, once we believe God, once we know that that's true, then we can trust him through the dark times. We can trust him simply because he said he's trustworthy. And that's the highest level of faith. We don't have to see anything. And we just keep on believing. I have a dear friend uh, in, in the Wednesday morning class. He does not come to this church. But a number of years ago, he... Uh, he lost his baby girl. She wandered off. He, he was in the backyard, and, and uh, she wandered away, got out of the gate, wandered off to the irrigation ditch at the back of their property, fell in and drowned. And uh, he, you know, he was, of course, just crushed. And uh, this was the thing that eventually led him back to God. He had been a religious man all of his life, but it strayed away. And this was the thing that he had no place else to turn. He was so grief-stricken, he could only turn to God. And uh, he told me last Wednesday, we were talking about that event, he just had a, his wife had a brand new little baby, uh, and uh, they uh, are celebrating that event. And he told me last week, he said, I, you know, I used to think I had uh, all these questions I want to ask Jesus when I see him. I had a whole list of questions. You know, why, 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 why did this happen? Why did that happen? His life has been hard in other ways than this one loss. But he said, it just dawned on me the other day. He said, I was thinking, I was looking at the, this new little gift and thinking. And it occurred to me that when I see Jesus, I don't have any questions any longer. I'm not going to ask him anything. I'm just going to love him. Now, you see, that's the level of faith to which our Lord wants to take us. We don't have to see anything. We don't have to have all our, our questions answered. We just love him. And that, that will take us through these dark times when there seems to be no light. We can walk by faith and not by sight. I'd like to have you turn to a hymn. Uh, it's number 284. It's the familiar hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. But I want to tell you about this hymn. Uh, you'll see that uh, Helen Lemmel both wrote the words and the music. I'm not sure of the pronunciation of her name, but... Uh, that's the way I've heard it pronounced. Uh, she uh, uh, went blind, and her husband decided he did not want to be married to someone who was blind, so he left her and uh, took all of the uh, family possessions and left her in poverty as well as in, as in blindness. And out of that experience, she wrote this hymn. Now, I want you to listen to the words, and we're going to sing them in a moment. And think of her circumstances. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior. 
and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Through death into life everlasting he passed and we follow him there. Over us sin no more has dominion for more than conquerors we are. I think what she's referring to here in this particular line is that we've been set free from the dominion of sin and death over us because death is the result of sin and our Lord freed us from from sin that produces death and so death no longer has any has any hold on us. We've been set free from the terror, the fear of death. Death is just simply a matter of entering into another experience when we get it all. Everything that the miracles signify, everything we've ever dreamed, everything we've ever wanted, everything our hearts hunger and long for, come then, either when we step into eternal life or our Lord comes back to take us to be with him forever. Um. I just this last week uh, read a, a story about Charles and Mary Lamb. Mary Lamb went insane when she was in her 40s. And uh, they had to put her in an asylum. In those days, asylums were pretty grim places. They got no help. They were simply locked up. And uh, the story... Uh, describes Mary and Charles Lamb walking together to the asylum. And, of course, he had to part with her at the door, and he'd never see her again. She'd be locked away for the rest of her life. And as they walked along, they were filled with joy, as the, as the author put it. They were filled with joy, waiting for that, that reunion that would come through death. Now, you see, that's faith. You look at something like that, and we, we think, my... What a terrible tragedy. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And life is full of, of tragedies just like that. But we know that there is no final defeat. Mary and Charles Lamb are now united in, in eternity, and you and I will be united, and you'll be united with all of those that are gone before. and Before you, and death has been stripped of its power, its sting. And all of that... We know because our Lord himself went to the cross for us. The Father raised him from the dead as the, as the final guarantee, the ultimate word on this matter, that God is good. God is good. And though things may be hard here, uh, there's no final defeat. Miracles tell us that it will be like that when we see him. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we come again to these stories and we know that these things are true. They really happened. These are not figments of John's imagination. These are real happenings. Our Lord did heal this boy. Our Lord does give life. He will someday give life to all of us who know him. Lord, we thank you for these these glimpses, these little pictures, these cameos of what life will be like when you come back to give sight to everyone that's blind and to open the ears of those that are deaf and to permit the dumb to speak and their bodies are repaired and made perfect and 
and we're delivered from every sin and every habit, when every tear is washed away and, and all the bad memories, all the, the terrible things that have happened are erased from our minds and we see your face. Lord, these uh, miracles make us long for that. We look forward to the time when that will come true. We ask that in the meantime we would so live in the way we care for others and we, we reach out to save and to heal and to help that we will model what life will be like when you come back. We ask that we will, in that sense, act like sons of the kingdom. Thank you for this encouraging word. Thank you for the, the way it affects our faith, the way it makes us want to, to love you more. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.